What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here with Judging Freedom. Today is Monday, March 27, 2023. It's about 2.15 in the afternoon here on the East Coast of the United States. Scott Horton uh, returns to the show from antiwar.com. Scott, of course, is, is a great defender uh, of the peace, P-E-A-C-E, a great analyst of the futility and horror of war. Uh, is writing a book on the Iraq War. And of course, this is the 20th anniversary of the commencement of the Iraq War. Why do we talk about the Iraq War? Because those not knowledgeable of the past are doomed to repeat it. Right, Scott? Yeah, that's definitely true. But the good news is I already wrote my Iraq War book. That's all in enough already. Uh, chapter three is all about Iraq War II there. Um, currently, I'm working on a book about Russia and Ukraine. Well, the cold let's, Russia let's, in America is called the new Cold War with Russia, really. Ukraine's let's part. start with Russia and Ukraine, and then I want to talk about uh, uh, about Iraq. The um, Iraq war was started by Republican neocons. This war is being fought by Democrat neocons. The mindset is the same. It doesn't matter which party they're in. Uh, they want to kill people, and they want to use a bludgeoning force to advance American uh, hegemony, which they call exceptionalism. Bush called it democracy. Uh, Biden is unable to articulate it. But as we speak today on the 27th of uh, March, 2023, what's your understanding uh, of the um, relationship between the combatants in, in Ukraine? Well, I mean, on the ground, the situation seems pretty dire for Ukraine's forces. I mean, uh, I, I don't know why anyone should trust any group's numbers unless you're really an expert and you know how to suss out the information from many different sources. Uh, certainly the Ukrainian government reports every day these mass casualties for the Russian side. And it does make sense that the Russians might be losing more people per day since they're the attackers and, you know, having to advance on defensive positions. On the other hand, the Russians seem to have the um, Ukrainians overmatched in terms of uh, numbers of men and in terms of weapons as well. And there have been a few recent reports, I think, as far as I know, most importantly in the Washington Post last week, saying essentially the jig is almost up here, guys, where the guys are out of ammo. They, um, the front lines are manned by people with basically no training and experience whatsoever. They're fighting for this town of Bakhmut that, depending on who you ask, is strategically important or maybe only symbolically. And the, the Ukrainian side had been saying, Judge, that, well, we're building up our reserves right now. We're training in Germany and in Poland, and we're getting new weapons from the Americans. And so we'll have a um, 
uh, spring. Up, uh, right. And then, but there was a recent report. In fact, uh, it was a Japanese newspaper. It's on antiwar.com right now. There was a report in a Japanese newspaper where they talked to President Zelensky and he admitted to them that really there's not going to be a spring offensive. They don't really have the power. Now, it could be that maybe there still is, but he's just saying that because he's really trying to play, uh, you know, drive a hard bargain and trying to get more weapons and equipment and, and right. expenditures from the the Western side here. I'm not sure the Americans have much more ammo to give. I mean, they've been saying for months they're running out here. What, what do you think uh, uh, President Biden's goal is? I mean, it can't be the, if he were being really candid, the, it can't be the removal of the Russians from Crimea. That's not militarily feasible. It can't be the removal of Vladimir Putin from office. That's not militarily feasible. What the hell is he trying to accomplish? Well, I mean, I, I think, I don't know about if he was candid. I mean, if you if you asked him, he would probably disavow Crimea. His Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has disavowed taking Crimea, saying, geez, that'd probably be a red line for the Russians. In other words, that ship has sailed. They're willing to accept right. that. But then their argument, now, Victoria Newland, his underling, overruled him and said, oh, yeah, we're coming for Crimea, all right. So, right. you know, who knows uh, who works for who there. But um, then, you know, the, the official stated position is that they are going to drive the Russians all the way out of Donetsk and Luhansk and, and Kherson and Zaporozhye and take all of, you know, Ukraine under its 1991 borders, less Crimea which seems to be, you know, just absolutely impossible of a task for them to accomplish. Um, now, at the same time, the Russians don't control all of Donetsk and Luhansk, but I think as Colonel McGregor would argue, they're not trying to now. It's not a matter of just biting off territory. It's a matter of destroying the other side's army, and then they can take whatever territory they want. The question then is, will they settle for, you know, uh, even the four provinces they've already annexed, might they go all the way to the Dnieper River? Um, you know, in other words, almost all the way to Kiev, which is just on the western bank of the Dnieper River there that bisects the country. Or right. and and on the other hand, could there be a peace deal now where maybe the Russians would settle for, you know, two out of the four provinces they've supposedly annexed here? And maybe keep, you know, a bit of Zaporozhye, southern Zaporozhye in that the so-called land bridge to Crimea, which would include the city of Mariupol. Well, when when Not President Mariupol. Xi, when President Xi was in Moscow uh, last week and before he before he publicly suggested a ceasefire in the presence of President Putin, wouldn't have said that without President Putin knowing about it ahead of time and approving it. Right. The uh, American spokesperson for the National Security Council, Admiral John Kirby, said, no, we're not going to. If he proposes a ceasefire, we're not in favor of it because it freezes the Russians in an advantageous position. Stated differently, we want more untrained teenage Ukrainian boys to be slaughtered before we agree that this has to stop. That's really right. And it comes right back to your point before about the ideology of American empire here, right? Where you can see how baked into all of this is the good and bad morality play where America's right. Superman and, and Putin is Lex Luthor and we're the heroes. And after all, it's against the law to change international borders by force. And that's what's going on here. And he must not be allowed to get away with that, et cetera, ignoring entirely their own role in picking this fight. Right. And, and in fact, 
where their role in picking this fight is extending their military alliance right up to Russia's border, making Ukraine a de facto member of NATO and normalizing their military uh, interoperability, they call it, with ours and the rest of this, while all the time essentially judge, I guess, smoking their own public relations that this is a purely defensive alliance. I don't know what you claim to pretend to be worried about. We would never attack you. We're just trying to ring your country with opposition military forces. That's all. And you're crazy for thinking that there's a provocation here to react to. That's well, imagine, mess. imagine the Chinese putting uh, uh, ICBMs in Mexico aimed at Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> And we, and we know how President Putin thinks. I want to switch gears because of the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War and because of your extraordinary expertise uh, in this area. Every once in a while, I would get in trouble at Fox for saying something management didn't like. But one of the times I most got in trouble was for saying on a non-Fox venue, I was being interviewed by Ralph Nader, the great Ralph Nader. I remember that great interview on C-SPAN. Yes, yes. And he says to me, should should George Bush and Dick Cheney be prosecuted? I said, yes, they absolutely should. He said, for what? I said, for war crimes, for murder, for slaughtering innocents, for bringing us into a war under false pretenses, for destroying a nation, for destroying a society. Obviously, I caught hell from Roger Ailes. I stayed at Fox and, and my life went on. Would you back me up for what I said when I said that? <laughs> yeah, man. No, listen, you're totally right, Judge. It's The whole thing was just the damnedest thing in the world. Should have never happened at all. Uh, you know, from a strategic point of view, it was a massive unforced error. From a moral point of view, it was purely a crime. And legal point of view, it was purely a crime. And no authorization from Congress. No even, you know, not that this is good enough for me, but according to them, uh, this would be good enough. No authorization from the UN Security Council to start a war. They pretended that they were enforcing UN resolutions that banned Iraq from having uh, unconventional weapons when they knew good and well that they had disarmed Iraq as early as 1991. Hussein had tried to hang on to a little bit of mustard gas, but he got caught in 1991, and it was all gone by the end of the year. They All the inspectors were completely satisfied of that fact by 1995. And, you know, Rolf Eckius was ready to certify that in 1996. Dick Cheney lied and said that Hussein's son-in-law, Hussein Kamel, who had defected to Jordan in 1996, admitted that Hussein Saddam had lied and kept the weapons, but he didn't finish the sentence. But then he got caught and destroyed it all by the end of 1991. That's what Hussein Kamel had said. And he had told the CIA and the uh, MI6 and the IAEA and CNN. And people can still find the interview online where he explains that he oversaw the destruction of every last bit of their unconventional weapons. So I, I have often opined uh, that George Bush was a very small, small-minded, narrow-minded, petty person. Agree. Who orchestrated this uh, invasion, including that speech that Colin Powell gave, which we all thought was the greatest speech of his career, which he would live to regret and renounce, and we all know was filled with lies, the one at the UN. But George Bush really wanted to go after Saddam Hussein, and he actually said this in an unguarded moment because, quote, Saddam tried to kill my daddy. You have another belief as to why we fought this horrific, hellish 
destructive war. Trillion dollars, 4,500 uh, American deaths, other or soldiers, uh, sailors, airmen, Marines, other, other civilian deaths, countless hundreds of thousands of Iraqi deaths and the destruction of a society. Why do you think Bush, Cheney, and their neocon cabal orchestrated this war? Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't for the reason that you just stated there. Seymour Hersh proved in The New Yorker that there never was a plot against H.W. Bush in Kuwait in 1993. It was just a whiskey smuggling ring that the Kuwaitis blew up into this plot against Bush because they were trying to prevent Bill Clinton from normalizing relations with Saddam. The entire thing was a hoax. And in fact, the same guy who perpetrated the hoax of the assassination attempt against Bush Sr. was the same guy whose daughter had claimed to see the Iraqi soldiers throw the babies out of their incubators two Ugh. years before. It's the exact same hoaxer in charge, okay? So that that sure wasn't it. Now, here's what it is quickly. W. Bush wanted to prove he was better than his father. He was smarter than his father. He had advised his father to go all the way to Baghdad, just as the neocons had in 91. It'll help you get reelected to be in the middle of a war. And what happened? Bush won his war too early. It took another year and a half before the election, and then he lost. And so the lesson for W. Bush was you have to have a war to be a successful war president. This kind of exactly just one-dimensional uh, you know, short-sighted and frankly, cruel thinking, you know, at the expense of all these people. Karl Rove agreed. That was his charge. Get Bush reelected, privatize social security in the second term. You got to have a war to get it done. Now, Donald Rumsfeld's interest was in pulling rank. Remember, he'd been secretary of defense before, and he wanted to push transformation of the military, cut down on big army, build up special operations command in the Air Force. And he was going to accomplish that with these test case wars to show how that worked. Then yeah. Dick Cheney ha had been a terrible CEO of Halliburton. People would say, oh, he was the CEO of Halliburton. He had failed. He had bought a company called Dresser Industries on the eve of them being found liable for literally judge billions of dollars of cancer asbestos claims. And then so Dick Cheney and his right hand man at Halliburton bought that company right before they got nailed. So he owed Houston big. He was a terrible businessman. So what did he do? He put Halliburton. He's also a former at this point at this point in his career. Cheney is also a former secretary of defense. Am I right? That's right. So that was why Halliburton hired him in the first place was, oh, we're going to make a lot of government money off of this. Right. He's a terrible CEO, but his deal is just wait, guys, I'm going to be vice president. We're going to have a war and I'm going to put you guys right on the dole. You'll be, you know, give you a State Department ATM card and you'll be set, which, of course, we know is how it played out. Right. But then you have, Judge, the neoconservatives, and they are one part representatives of the military industrial complex, one part ideologues of American imperial hegemony, and one part servants of Israel's Likud party. And in fact, at the time, Ariel Sharon was the prime minister of Israel, but the American neoconservatives led by Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, Scooter Libby, um, of course, Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan and all of these guys, they were closer to Netanyahu's faction of Likud. And he was always much more an Iraq hawk than an Iran hawk and wanted to do Iraq first, which, of course, coincided with Bush and Rove and, and Cheney's goals as well. And so um, even though Sharon wanted Bush to hit Iran first, he quickly got on board. And, um, you know, if you uh, search my name on Twitter, 
um, and 23 articles you can find where I recently put out a thread of 23 articles all about how the neoconservatives lied us into war. And essentially where the CIA analysts were somewhat reluctant to come up with tall tales, although they played their role. And the CIA operations guys were perfectly happy to torture innocent men into pointing the finger at Saddam. At the Pentagon, Paul Wolfowitz, Douglas Fife, and Abram Shulsky ran a group called the Office of Special Plans, where they brought together Michael Ledeen and Michael Rubin, a bunch of other neoconservatives, and they were the ones who laundered the majority of the lies from the Iraqi exiles and whatever else they could just make up and funnel that intelligence into the stream. And How do we prevent this from happening again? Because that mindset, we called them neocons today. I don't know what they call Tony Blinken and his crew today, but the mindset is the same. American exceptionalism, and we will kill to advance it. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think there's a great argument, as Justin Raimondo always did argue. His great book is called Reclaiming the Right. And it's about how the neoconservatives, why do we call them that? It's not because they're just conservatives nowadays. It's because they used to be leftists and, and Cold War Democrats. And they were the new conservatives because when the liberals got soft on war in the 60s, they decided instead of being like hardcore Truman Cold Warriors, they became more like hippies. And so the neocons moved to the right so they could be Reaganites and support militarism. And now if... The conservative right in America is feeling much more America first and would rather preserve their republic at the expense of the empire. We can see how the neocons are perfectly happy to move right back into the Democratic Party where they're from, which is that's really what they are. Is they're like Hillary Clinton, pro-war, right-wing Democrats. That's what they right. are, pro-war Democrats. Well, if, if um, Trump or DeSantis were to be elected uh, in 2024, though, those Republican neocons would go fleeing to the Democratic Party, would they not? I'm not so sure how welcome they would be or not in a DeSantis administration. And frankly, you know, Trump made his compromises with the neoconservatives. Yes, he did. He hired Eric Edelman and their John Bolton is not a neoconservative, but he's a very close friend of theirs and might as well be one of them. And and so he would have to really run on, oh, I disavow them and that's never going to happen again kind of thing. And then DeSantis has always been a hawk and he said one or two rational things, but I'm not impressed. George W. Bush, who was George Bush's son, said, oh yeah, I want to have a humble foreign policy. And I didn't believe him for one instant then. Right. And and I'll, I really don't believe DeSantis. Now, Trump, I know is of two minds about this. He can be very hawkish, but he can also just want to throw up his hands and say, I want out of Somalia. I want out of Afghanistan. I want out of Syria. And and he has that going for him in a sense. So I'm, I'm very anxious, Judge, to watch for the next year and year and a half until the conventions and everything to see these men fight this out of whether to be a true Republican nowadays means you're a George W. Bush hawk or whether you hate that stuff. Look, last uh, question. How long do you see the uh, war in Ukraine lasting <clears throat> before Zelensky is either dead or has to give up, give up the ghost. I mean, I really have no idea. I mean, frankly, you know, I, I look at it and I'm not a real expert on the armaments and the troop division strengths and all these things. I'm looking at it from a further zoomed out point of view than that. But it just seems to me like an irresistible force versus an unmovable object. You have this hugely powerful Russian empire still with, you know, essentially millions of men at their disposal if it comes down to it. 
with an industrial capacity to produce armaments at a rate that Ukraine can't match and that apparently even the West can't match when it comes to simple artillery and stuff like that. But you do, the West does have all this intelligence, all these satellites, all this, um, you know, uh, long range rocket artillery and all of these things that they're able to put to great use. And the Ukrainians are defending territory dug into their foxholes, right? So I don't know how, if it, as far as I know, one side or the other could collapse tomorrow, but I don't think so. It looks like, it, it looks more likely the Ukrainian side will collapse uh, rather than the Russian side ever. Um, but I don't know how long that might take, frankly. And and I really wish that somebody with a cooler head would just insist that we negotiate instead. You know, the war in Yemen finally came to an end when some guy in a robe, judge, I don't know who, came to the crown prince and said, enough of this. Negotiate with the Houthis, end the war. And that was right around a year ago. And then that's exactly what happened. Well, where's our guy in a white robe to tell Biden, knock it off now. This is enough. Send Blinken to Geneva. If somebody shows up. Off, can be reasonable. Let's if somebody it. shows up to talk to Joe Biden in a white robe, Joe will think the person <laughs> is a ghost. <laughs> yeah, seriously, right? He it's brought it to help, though. You know what? It's always, a, always a pleasure. What do you want me to do? I love your anti-war passion, and so do all. Uh, all of your fans on Judging Freedom. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Judge. More as we get it, uh, Douglas McGregor tomorrow, Judge Napolitano on Judging Freedom.